and thank you for listening to Roots and Wings, a podcast produced by the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth. I'm Jonquil Newland, the director of Kids Central TN. During this episode, we'll discuss youth and mental health, specifically the kinds of therapy that is available for children and youth who are struggling with mental illness. Now, to help me through this, I'm joined by the supervisor for the pediatric therapy program at Mental Health Cooperative, Brianna Grant. Brianna, thank you so much for being a guest on Roots and Wings. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm excited to have this conversation. But before we get into that conversation, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about the Mental Health Co-op, or the Co-op, as you guys like to say it. The organization has been around since the mid-90s here in Nashville and provides help for adults and children who have serious emotional challenges. Now, Brianna, along with your duties at the Mental Health Co-op, I'd like to point out, of course, that you are also in private practice and you do provide therapy services for children, teens, and families outside of the co-op as well. Now, this isn't the first episode we've dedicated to mental health, but it is important to have these discussions since so many people are impacted by it. Now, for example, nearly 20% of youth between 13 and 18 years old experience severe mental disorders in any given year. It's also important to note that about half of the number of children with mental illness do not receive any services or help. Now, while the stats and numbers tend to focus on older youth sometimes and teens, we know young, young children are heavily impacted as well. So, Brianna, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do at the Mental Health Co-op and what kind of services that organization provides specifically? Sure, I'll start with uh, the services that the Mental Health Cooperative provides as a whole. Um, Mental Health Co-op really exists to encourage and empower children and adults and families with behavioral health issues to live healthier lives. And we do that through integrated care and treating the whole person um, so that people can live a healthy life in the community. Um, We really work, my focus is with children there, but we also work with adults um, with emotional and behavioral challenges and adults with serious mental illnesses uh, and substance abuse difficulties as well. We have 24-hour crisis centers um, in the Nashville community for children and adults to come to. We provide wraparound services that include care management, medication management, and therapy. Uh, We have integrated an integrated health center um, in the Nashville area where people can come for medical for medical needs. Adults. We have school-based services where we have therapists in the schools. Um, We have specialized services for those experiencing homelessness or court involvement, and we also have a medication medication. Assisted, assisted treatment in Nashville um, for those dealing with opioid addiction. It really sounds like there's fingers in every avenue of this. Yes. I mean, it's something that um, the creators of the Mental Health Cooperative are very passionate about, as well as all of us that work there. We really want to be engaged in the community and help the people that we see. So, I really feel, especially in the state, uh, since the new administration took over with Governor Lee, he has seemingly kind of put a focus on mental health. Uh, do you have you seen any changes since I know he's obviously still very new in office, but at least having more discussions? Do you think there's any kind of changes happening so far? Absolutely, I feel like um, there's a lot of involvement with ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and that being promoted within our community, within the mental health community, um, and within the government system in terms of he's involved in that. He's been involved and supportive of our crisis center that opened recently, our expanded crisis center that opened recently. So I feel like it's becoming less of a taboo and less of a stigma, and it's encouraging people to reach out for help when they, them or their children or their families are in need. 
You mentioned the new crisis center, and I'd like to point out because um, specifically, I know that that was a big thing uh, for the state, and and also we can get into this just a little bit more, but I. I feel like so many youth, especially those who maybe get in trouble with the law, um, those who are in the juvenile justice system, they immediately go into custody and not necessarily get help for their mental health. When a lot of the times that's what's causing it is mental health illness. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think, you know, behavior always has a purpose and it's usually underlying reasons for that behavior, whether it's turmoil at home, there's trauma that's happened that is creating their inability to cope with what's happening in their life and a lot of times children act out behaviorally or emotionally which can create mental illness or there's genetic disposition for that and I think um, by reaching out or knowing that there's a crisis center that they can walk into 24-7 adults as well and get some of the mental health they need it's really helpful and the court system is becoming much more aware of the mental health issues in our community and hopefully implementing more awareness around evaluation of mental illness prior to criminal I guess charges or criminal Right. Until, I mean, once a a youth or child is in the system, um, I would say the likelihood of them getting completely out of it at some point, it's... It goes down. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. Um, and especially if they don't have the family support or the resources to get the help that they need, which is the beauty of the mental health co-op, co-op because we have all of those resources and hopefully they're being utilized. Yes, definitely. Uh, you did mention ACEs as well. And I'm so glad that you did because ACEs for our listeners, uh, that stands for adverse childhood experiences and ACEs can impact a child, have an impact on a child, I, I like to say, uh, that will last their entire life. So, so many ACEs can come from traumatic experiences. As you mentioned, Brianna, you specialize in trauma-informed approaches for helping kids. Now, first, can you define exactly what trauma is and what are some of the best practices when working with trauma in children? Sure. I mean, when we go back to talking about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, that is something that Nashville, um, we have a commission, an ACEs commission, and we're really working on spreading that information out, not just in the mental health community, but in main businesses and in schools to understand that when we experience adverse events before the age of 18, um, it can cause lasting effects on, on our brain development, on our physical health issues, um, and it can create mental health issues. And so, I mean, we know from research that um, they did a poll in Tennessee around ACEs and how many adverse childhood experiences people had experienced before the age of 18, and 27% had three or more ACEs in their in their lifetime before 18, and there's the categories we're checking is 10. There's 10 categories we're looking at. And so that's one in four people that's in our community that is, is affected by childhood trauma, which is really what adverse experiences can be. Toxic stress is another word we use for trauma. Um, And for the pediatric therapy program that I supervise at the Mental Health Cooperative, we have a focus on children and adolescents. We have, and I'm kind of jumping back to that, but we have, um, it's a partnership program that we have where we are partnering up with pediatric clinics, medical pediatric clinics, and we have therapists in these clinics there all day, every day, providing 
therapy services, collaborating with doctors to kind of promote that integrated care. But a lot of what we see is children who have experienced trauma or adolescents that have experienced trauma or whole family systems that have experienced trauma. And so when we want to define trauma, I mean, it can be defined in so many ways. Um, And a lot of the ways that I describe it when I'm working with clients or when I'm talking with my staff or having them talk with families about what trauma really is, is really just an overwhelming, uncontrollable experience that psychologically impacts us by creating in us feelings of helplessness vulnerability, loss of safety, loss of control. These are experiences that can be repeated in our lifetime, such as sexual abuse or physical abuse or witnessing domestic violence or even neglect because we weren't cared for properly by our caregivers or maybe because we live in, a, in an unsafe environment in terms of in our community. It's There's violence in the community. Um, living with a parent with mental illness can create traumatic experiences for us. And so um, it just really impacts our functioning mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, um, to where if, as children, when you're going to school and you've had experiences of trauma at home or you're living through chronic trauma, that really impacts your ability to learn. It impacts your ability to socially engage well with other children. It impacts your ability to communicate what's happening to you verbally. Um, And so it just impacts us as a whole um, when we have traumatic experiences and especially chronic traumatic experiences throughout our childhood. Um, In terms of treatment modalities, there's so many that that we can talk about, and I'll I'll pick a couple. Um, You know, when we've had repeated trauma, it it impacts our brain development. So it changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way that our brain can perceive threats or potential threats. And so if I've experienced chronic trauma as a child and I'm sitting in school and I'm in the classroom and there's a loud bang out in the hallway, and to me a loud bang unconsciously might mean that something bad's happening in my household, well, my, my ability to learn is kind of out the door because I'm now hypervigilant. I'm now ready to go into flight, flight, or freeze mode, and I can't learn that way, and children can't learn that way. And that affects us moving on forward as adults as well. And so a lot of the therapy approaches that I use, especially is um, there's trauma-focused CBT, which is using um, trying to determine what cognitive thoughts are attached to a traumatic event, such as I am bad or it's my fault. And we really work to, to help process the events of trauma and reorganize those in the brain, because often when we've had a traumatic experience, our brain processes trauma very differently than a normal experience at Chuck E. Cheese or on a field trip that's exciting or fun. And so the left side of our brain is is the part of our brain that really categorizes events. It creates the beginning, middle, and an end to a story. It's where all of our words are and our articulation of things. And then the right side of our brain is the part that categorizes all of our smells and sounds and pictures and images and our felt sense of what's going on. And so when a traumatic experience happens, what also also can happen is that left side of the brain kind of for lack of a better phrase, kind of goes offline. And so what stays with us is the smells and the pictures and the images and the fear or the helplessness or the hopelessness. And it's just not integrated well in the brain. And so trauma-focused CBT and other evidence-based therapies like EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, helps to reintegrate and reprocess that trauma in order to categorize it as a past event. So it kind of takes away the charge from that emotional piece of that trauma. So 
flashbacks and nightmares and some of those things kind of we help lessen those through some of these therapies and another form of therapy that I use and I'm extremely passionate about is play therapy um, which is really helpful for kids three to three to eleven years old or even really younger but um, to help them reprocess their trauma in that way and when you say play therapy and I wanted to obviously get into this a little bit more uh, later on in our discussion but is that literally because I picture it in my head with small children taking puppets or toys and kind of playing through a certain scenario and then talking about why each of their characters feel a certain way. Is that a form of play therapy or am I just kind of way out in left field there? I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, the the goal of play therapy is really to help children give them a natural medium of their self-expression, to give them pleasurable activity. That's kind of their language. That's how they communicate as young children anyways. Um, It helps them to evoke fantasies and unconscious feelings through this play and and puppets can be involved um i have a huge playroom full of lots of miniatures and superheroes and villains and police officers and doctors and helper figures and fantasy creatures like dragons and and real life animals and um there's also sand tray and art activities and um to give them the ability to play out real life scenarios but in other ways it really helps them to process in a way that we as adults might go into a therapy session and say, let me tell you what's going on in my life. And sometimes we perseverate, right? We keep talking until we have made sense of something. Well, children do that through play. They come in and they play the same kind of themes over and over again to help them make sense of what's happened in their world or what they're confused about or or why they're feeling a certain way. I keep going back to an example that I think is a great example of saying, you know, a young child's not going to go to an adult, a trusting adult, and be like, I have anxiety. Right. They don't even know what that is. They have have a stomach ache. They have weird feelings. They don't know how to explain it. They just know something's different. Right. They don't always have the language. I mean, especially if we're talking about children, three to seven, eight, nine, they don't always have the language to say, I'm really anxious about this math test because I'm worried if I don't pass my math test, then I won't get to go to the pirate party on Friday at school. Really, it's I have a stomach ache or I can't concentrate or I don't feel good or I don't want to go to school. Um, So it comes, the behavior's or what we see usually, or those somatic symptoms, physical symptoms that they show. And it's our job as therapists to to kind of get to the underlying reasons for some of these behaviors or what's really going on. And so part of my job as a play therapist is to help give children that language and teach them feeling identification words and help them connect those feeling words with times that they've experienced certain events, right? And there, there are big things that happen in our life like grief and loss or a traumatic experience that even us as adults really don't know how to articulate and describe. And so for children, play is such a beautiful way for them to come in and show it. And they don't always show it the way you would think. They're not always coming in and, you know, if somebody has passed away, they're not coming in and necessarily burying somebody and be like, that's what happened. But a lot of times they might be playing separation where there's families together that are constantly being separated in play. Or there's somebody that they can't find, like a figure that they just can't seem to find somewhere in their play. Um, so there's a lot of themes that they show in their play that kind of help guide what I'm supposed to do and the interventions that I can help put in place to help them process what's happening for them and to give them those words and also just the skills, the coping skills to manage what's happening in their life. I I would like to point out to our listeners as well, we're talking a lot about um, 
ACEs, obviously, and, and toxic stress, Brianna, I'm glad you brought that term up as well. Can you talk a little bit about the levels? I understand there's some toxic stress that everyone somewhat goes through at some point, whether you lost a pet or a grandparent at some point, and some toxic stress levels can help teach children to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's other stress levels that have lifelong impacts. Do you see more of, in your practice, do you see more of one than the other? I think it's across the board. And everybody has, a, you know, a different level of resiliency and tolerance to be able to manage things. And some of that has to do with age and experience. But there are three levels of stress that we've learned about from, from ACEs, the ACEs research that's happened. And one is positive stress, which sounds kind of like an oxymoron. But we all have levels of positive stress, right? A spike in a stressful event. If you're first day of school, the first day at your new job, you kind of have a spike of cortisol. You're kind of anxious. It's a little stressful. But you get there and you're like, oh, my teacher's nice. Or or this is going to be a great workplace, and you kind of level back out. Then there's the second type of stress that we can have, which is considered tolerable stress. So these are might last a little longer events, stressful events, such as the death of a loved one, or um, trying to think of another example, uh, maybe there's been a car accident, or you've had to move into an entire new community. So that stress level might last a little bit longer, but what makes that usually tolerable is supportive people to help buffer some of that. So if you have a supportive network of friends, or you have your parents who are are very helpful and supportive, that tolerable stress level spikes for a little bit, but it eventually goes back down and you kind of go back to homeostasis. And then there's toxic stress, which this is chronic repeated exposure to traumatic events that really damages um, the developing brain, especially for children. And what can make that worse is if they do not have a buffer, they do not have a caregiver, they do not have a support, or even if worse, their caregiver is potentially the one who's perpetuating the abuse or the trauma. And so that's where the lasting effects from from trauma and toxic stress come from is that repeated chronic exposure. And that's what I think so many people are now trying to have these discussions a little bit more, uh, at least getting the word out. The more parents and adults are aware of these levels of stress, I think uh, it could help. It it can only help. The more education, the more more awareness. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about, I know young children specifically have a hard time communicating as we kind of talked about. Now, what kind of play therapy is your favorite go-to? <laughs> There's so many different you know, modalities within that. And I always try to break it down into just the basic. There are basically two types of play therapy. There's a lot more. But to make it basic is there's non-directive play therapy, which is where we let the child lead the session. And we are, as the therapist, tracking and following along and reflecting what they're showing us. So if a child comes into the office and takes two figures and shows them fighting back and forth together, I might say, oh, those, they seem really angry. They're, they're fighting each other, right? I'm just reflecting what they're showing me. Or if a child comes in with their arms crossed and their lips pursed, I'm like, I will mimic that. I will show them and with my body the same way, like, you, you might look like you're mad today, right? Giving them the words and reflecting back to them. And then there's directive play therapy, which is where we're implementing activities to help foster feelings identification or to help process the trauma that's happened or to work on developing coping skills for them in terms of we're practicing deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation or um, other tactile um, calming strategies with Play-Doh or bubbles to help them learn some of those things. So it, it's there's two forms. I mean, there's obviously there's Jungian and Alderian and there's all kinds of, of different forms, but um, those are the two basic. And I, I do have a mixture of both um, in terms of when I first meet with a child and 
I want to see what they're going to show me. I want to watch them play and do that non-directive. Um, and then once I'm watching for their themes in play that maybe they feel stuck in something or they're really angry or they're really anxious, well, then I can implement some directive activities, games, or other types of play activities to help them process through that. Well said. I know a lot of people, uh, once they hear this, I'm assuming someone's going to want to reach out to you. And I know you're in private practice and you're mm-hmm. also with Mental Health Co-op. Yeah. Can people reach out to you specifically through the co-op or or should they reach out to you personally? In terms of, of working for the co-op, so if you have a child in a pediatric clinic that we have a partnership with, that would be great. You can talk to your PCP at that clinic. But in terms of services for the Mental Health Cooperative, we have offices throughout Middle Tennessee um, in Metro Nashville, Antioch, Columbia, Clarksville, Dixon, Gallatin, Murfreesboro, and also in East Tennessee, in Cleveland and, and Cookville, and... Chattanooga. Sorry. <laughs> Trying to find the word. Um, and so anybody can call our, our, our call center in order to schedule, um, initiate an appointment. And the number for that, I can give it, is a one 816 So the Mental Health Cooperative Call Center in order to initiate services is one 816 In terms of private practice, I don't take insurance. So that kind of creates a little bit of difficulty, whereas the Mental Health Cooperative can, can serve the majority of people in need or will find a way to do that. Um, in terms of private practice, I have a website, which is just www.briannagrant.com that they can find me at, which is B-R-I-A-N-N-A, G-R-A, ant.com and they can reach out to me that way if they're interested privately but the mental health cooperative can definitely serve the needs they they serve children three to a hundred yeah i like that three to a hundred that's that's so true i do want to get your point uh or your input real quick on something i know september is national suicide prevention awareness month we're having this discussion in september um but i do want to the, the numbers are staggering and not only that but just the numbers of of youth who suffer with mental illness and don't report it why do you think that is so much I'm hoping that the stigma to that starts to to decrease over time um, as it's something that there are anonymous, you know, chat lines and text message lines and and chat on the Internet lines. And there's so many ways that people can reach out for help, even if there is some shame involved. I do think shame is a piece of that because there must be something wrong with me. But there's something wrong with all of us in terms of we all have our own struggles. We all carry our own problems and sometimes we need help and there's nothing wrong with asking for that help we all need help and some of us need it outside of our families or outside of our friend system um and i think for adolescents especially it's just a hard time i wouldn't go back to being an adolescent it's so hard it's so hard you're trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be and where you belong and i think that just exacerbates any underlying mental illness that might be happening um and so just reach out. I mean, like I said, you can do it anonymously if, if there's concern that you don't want somebody to know. I think it's also important for the people around adolescents and kids to really attune and pay attention and watch. So if your teen suddenly starts becoming sullen and doesn't really kind of hang out with the family anymore. Some of that's normal, right? Like, I want to hang out with my friends, but if they're in their room all the time, they start changing the way they dress, they suddenly don't want to be around certain people, I think it's worth a conversation to say, hey, what's really going on? And if you don't feel like they're talking to you, it's encouraging them and helping them to find somebody that they can talk to to get that help. Do you find, Brianna, that there's better, best ways or best best practices, I'd like to say, um, to to start those hard conversations because 
sometimes, especially with teens, I've learned, <laughs> uh, they uh, can cut, shut down pretty quickly if you ask the question the wrong way. Sure. Is there a best way that you would advise parents or adults who are around youth and may have a concern? What? How would you go about starting a conversation like that? I think what I've always <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> found helpful is that I like to use the word I wonder in front of questions. So sometimes when we go to a child or an adolescent and say, why did you do something? Their minds just take it as I'm in trouble or I've done something wrong. <clears throat> Whereas I feel like if I say, I wonder, I wonder why that happened. Or I wonder what went on today at school. For some reason, it just kind of sounds a little less intimidating or accusatory, even if that's not what we're trying to do. But that's a weird, simple little trick that I, I kind of tell parents, and I, and I work with kids, and I found it really works if I just start sometimes a conversation with like, you know, I wonder what's going on. I wonder what's happened. I've noticed, you know, that you're, you're not being yourself. I wonder what's happened. I wonder if you're feeling something that you want to talk about. And then I think it's, if they won't talk to you, it's, it's finding somebody that they will talk to. Because it's not necessarily abnormal that a kid doesn't want to open up to their parent. I wish it wasn't that way, but unfortunately it can be that way. And so there's resources at schools. Like I said, a lot of PCPs know how to refer on to the mental health world um, to find services. And so I think a lot of it is also doing it. I also encourage parents sometimes to do it in the car. It's less intimidating um, for kids sometimes um, because you don't have to look them in the eye or they don't have to look you in the eye. And if you're going on a drive, sometimes it's just having a chat in the car because you don't have to make eye contact and it feels a little less maybe threatening or perceived threat to them. So that's a side little trick. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard of that one, but I think that that's... Probably a great idea. It can work. <laughs> no, I'm like, it. all the conversations I recall having in the car, I mean, yeah, tough. Co- you know what? Now I think about it, I think my mom actually did that with me and my brother. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't really escape necessarily because you're in the car. You can look out the window and kind of, it's just a less intimidating way to have a conversation, especially maybe for a child or a teenager, to be honest. It's also, you know, I have parents tell me a lot when they put tuck their kids into bed, all of a sudden all these questions come out like, where do babies come from? And why did you get divorced? And they're like, oh, it's bedtime, mm-hmm. right? And some of that's stalling and some of that's just they're, they're just relaxed and not stimulated. And so the car is one of the places, too, if you can get their phone away from them, obviously, to say, you know, we're, we're taking an hour drive. It's a good time to have a conversation. Let's turn the radio down and say, I wonder what's been going on with you. Tell me about your friends. Who you just, who do you sit with at lunch? Who do you, um, what's your favorite class at school? Because a lot of it is about getting to know who they are at that moment. Because it changes so much for kids and teens, right? What they're interested in and what music they listen to. And, and a good question is always, like, who do you sit with at lunch? Because it kind of tells, like, are they eating lunch by themselves? Are they at a group with a bunch of friends? Do they not feel like they have anybody to connect with during lunch? I don't know why. But that seems to be one of the most anxiety-provoking things for teens sometimes. But it's also a good indicator of kind of how they're feeling throughout their day. That's very true. the one social time that they really have at school. So, And, you know, I can I can remember, um, you know, lunchtime, where do I sit? Who do I sit with? Where do I go? That in itself is a lot of stress. Yeah, anxiety provoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. And it also brings up, if, if you guys probably have seen on social media recently, maybe Brianna, you've seen it, but that happened with a sister and a brother, and it's not here in Tennessee, um, but she just texted him, hey, how was your lunch? Mm-hmm. I sat I alone. That's good. Oh. 
And so she put an all call out on social media, on Twitter. And thankfully, some older students, he was a freshman in high school and also very short, but some older students, seniors saw that as it was getting traction on Twitter, found him in the cafeteria and have now made it a point to be a part of his life. Oh my gosh, I love that. I did not see that on social media. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful story. And and I honestly can't remember what state it came out of, but we need more stories like that. People are good at heart. Most of us are good at heart. That's so true. And if we don't know, we can't step in. And so what a beautiful way for an older person at this school to be like, well, this is a good time for me to step in. I had no idea that this person was eating alone or felt sad or alone. That's wonderful. I didn't know that. That's great. And, you know, in a time we're in at the moment as well, it really... Our children are our future, mm-hmm. and when we see them doing acts of kindness or or bravery, or even, I mean, because it's brave to go to an adult and say, I need help. Yeah. I'm not feeling good. I need to talk to someone. That's a step of bravery, and that's a step in the right direction. I, I just hope that more people start doing it. Right. And even for teenagers, you know, or, or kids, if you have a friend that comes up to you and you feel like is struggling, I would encourage you to go to a trusted adult and ask for help to help them, that you can help them together with another adult um, because sometimes it's too big for even us as teenagers to, to know what to do and so it's also okay to reach out for help for your friend yeah well said. we all need each other love and support one another all we need is love uh, well Brianna thank you so much for, for sitting down with me and having this important discussion is there anything I did not ask that you want our listeners to think or know about no I mean I just encourage um, kids to play let kids play and take them to play therapy if you feel like they're struggling. Um, reach out to the health cooperative if you or anyone that you know is in need of some mental health services. Um, and don't be scared to reach out. So you mentioned um, let kids play, and I am a 100% supporter of that. And research and science is beginning to come out more and more often uh, backing that kids need to be outside. They need to play. They need recess. Mm-hmm. And yet school districts across the country and here in Tennessee are minimizing the amount of recess and playtime for children, young children at that as well. Why is this happening? I don't know, but it really impacts their brain development. They need time to free play. You know, as kids, you and I probably, you know, I didn't come home till the streetlights came on. Like we had constant free play without necessarily constant adult supervision, which Supervision is always good, don't get me wrong. But there was that ability to use your imagination, to create games, to invite other kids to play in games, to play a pickup game of basketball, of just free play and free creativity play that really helps with brain development and cultivating creativity and imagination. And when they take that away from kids and they have them sitting in seats all day long, I can't imagine the behavioral problems that will come of that, not to mention just them being able to blow off steam in the middle of the day and just kind of run. I mean, you know, we sit in offices a lot. I mean, I get to play more than most, which is really nice. (laughs) It's the best part of my job. I get to play with kids all day. But um, I think, you know, taking that away from them, that ability to just create a game of tag or um, hide and seek is is it's just really impacting their brain development and affecting I do think their ability to learn and focus yeah well so, said so add it in let kids play <laughs> that's right Brianna I'm going to start a hashtag let, yeah, let, let kids play let kids play <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again for being here Brianna and thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Roots and Wings we'll see you next month I'm Jonquil Newland Thank you.